You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm here. It's this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. A lot of tennis action so far uh, these first hundred days of the year, but today we're going to take a break from the tours and we're going to talk about tennis movies and the lack thereof. Our guest is an in-person guest, Chris Nashawadi, longtime friend, is a movie critic for Entertainment Weekly. He actually just texted me the other day encouraging me to see Borg vs. McEnroe, the new Shia LaBeouf movie, um, and I thought this would be as good a time as any to talk about the state of tennis movies. Chris also has a new book out on Caddyshack. It actually started with a Sports Illustrated story he did in oral history, and now he has a full-length book on the Caddyshack movie, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story, and how we all wish tennis had the equivalent of Caddyshack, a movie that endures for decades, popularizes, and demystifies the sport. Unfortunately, tennis doesn't have that equivalent. We talk a little bit about why. Chris is a big tennis guy. Um, and we talk Borg McEnroe, we talk about verisimilitude, we talk about uh, some different techniques for filming, and we talk a lot about Caddyshack in his new book. So uh, this is a fun podcast, a little bit different, but uh, here he is, Chris Nashawati. Thanks for stopping by. My pleasure to be here, John. All right, we are going to talk about a lot of things. The tennis and film overlap is going to be our theme, but... I want your Bonafides coming out early. You're a tennis guy. I am a tennis guy. I enjoy uh, the sport immensely. I play it a little less uh, expertly, but I do enjoy it. It's one of my favorite sports, absolutely. But you, you've written about it for Grantland. You, I have. you cover some tennis. Yeah, I do. Uh, you know, not as much as I would like. Uh, I'm, I'm a movie critic mainly, but, uh, you know, tennis is is probably my second strongest passion. And you played as well? Yes, I do. In the uh, the mean streets of uh, Darien, Connecticut. In the mean streets of Darien, Connecticut. Yes, it's uh, some really, uh, you know, we foil up the knuckles before those matches. <laughs> what? Um, I mean, let's let's start in you. The reason we're we're doing this, you got in touch with me yesterday and strongly encouraged me to see uh, 
to see Borg versus McEnroe. Yeah, it's a new movie about the 1980 Wimbledon final um, uh, between Borg and McEnroe, and it's a dramatization of that, and it really digs into the psychology of both of the players, and it sort of goes against the grain of what we think we know about them. Um, that, you know, McEnroe was the hothead and upstart and, and Borg was sort of this robotic, icy Swede. Uh, and it sort of gives you a little bit more context to maybe that wasn't the case in their childhoods and things like that. Scripted, though. It's scripted, it's yeah. It's not, not a documentary. This it's is... not a documentary. There was a pretty good documentary that the HBO, HBO did. Right, yeah. right. Um, but no, this is a, this is a dramatic movie. Uh, it's, and it's, I, th- I thought it was very good. I really did like it. The story I heard was it was supposed to – it's been done for a while. It yeah. was supposed to come out nine months ago. They didn't want it to conflict with the Battle of the Sexes movie. Um, they did not get a ringing endorsement from John McEnroe. Not – I guess – I mean, I can't say that I'm surprised by that. I mean, he – look, the movie is written by a Swedish writer, and it's financed by Scandinavian money, and um, it definitely – gives the edge in terms of the emphasis of the film to Borg. Right. Um, Which runs counter to what you would the, think. the common retelling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so um, if, maybe McEnroe feels slighted that his story wasn't as in-depth as Borg's story was. I mean, he is a little one-note in the movie um, as being sort of this uh, just like, well, he, that, you know, it's not entirely true. Let me rethink that. He, he's not hes not one note in the movie. He's a pretty complex character, but they do play up his sort of super Brad image. And there, there's some production overlap. I mean, it's not the same team that did I, Tanya, But I no. understand it, it is uh, a few of the producers are the same. Yeah, it? that's correct. Yes. Yeah. Neon Productions is the company. What do you think of that? I'll, I'll tell you my, uh, I, I saw I, Tanya and yeah. rather enjoyed it. And yeah. I talked to Mary Carrillo, who did an HBO documentary. On, on T- Tanya and Nancy. It actually got Nancy Kerrigan to, to speak. Yeah. And I, I have to say, the uh, the, the on-again, off-again relationship with the facts in I, Tanya had me reassessing. Yeah. Um, they did not hew to uh, accuracy necessarily. And, but they make, they're very upfront about that. You know, uh, they do say that, you know, this is a story that is sort of based on personal recollections that may not totally jive with the facts. And, and, I think that the, they do enough sort of disclaimering at the beginning of the film that I was fine just going with it, with the story that you they were. wanted to tell. Yeah, it didn't bother me that much that it was played fast and loose with the facts. Uh, I thought it was a pretty good movie. We're, you're talking I, Tanya. Yeah. Yeah, I just, you know, the central, sort of central theme about how much did Tanya know. Right. Uh, it, it does seem the historical record differs a bit from the filmmakers uh well do we know exactly how much she knew about the 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 plot of those you know galuli and i will, I will Sean uh, and, I'll, I'll, and those goons? I'll, I'll send you the uh I'll, I'll send you the link to, okay. to mary's documentary okay um it, actually i mean i i lived in it's my first year out of college I was living in portland oregon at the time oh okay and there was no doubt that uh sort of out out there anyway that tanya harding was if not an accomplice per se, she yeah. certainly could have been. Yeah, that there was there was co-conspirator uh, fingerprints there. It was a little jarring, I have to say, to see her. At, you know, Allison Janney's taking her to the yeah. Oscars, and so right. this redemption twenty-five years later it's of, an, uh, of Tanya. Harding. I never thought that that re- personal redemption tour would ever come for her, frankly. So it's 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 got to be a nice nice gravy for her this at this point. But um, but Board McEnroe, you you weren't distracted by the fact that this was scripted. 
Not at all. No, I mean, it, I you know, I personally have always felt that that you know the 1980 men's final at Wimbledon is one of the most epic uh, tennis matches of all time. I mean, really, just just up there with you know maybe sure. top three or four, and uh, especially the fourth set tiebreak. And there's a lot of drama there. And um, I wasn't distracted by the movie. I thought I would be distracted by Shia LaBeouf as as McEnroe. Yeah, right, right. But you know what? Like as the movie goes on, you know, I don't know how much you know about like Shia LaBeouf's sort of personal exploits and hijinks, but like, you know, he has like a, a, a some pretty, overlap. There. He, he's he is a lot like McEnroe. <laughs> right, I mean, right. there's like a whole string of like TMZ meltdowns of this guy, and it's it's almost like a perfect match of actor and character. Um, and he's very good in the movie. And um, even the tennis, which they get so often wrong in sport in tennis that's, movies, is, is pretty solid. No, that was because I think to to a lot of tennis fans, I think that's sort of the the match point movie. I mean, I think yeah. Wim, Wimbledon, for example, yeah, uh, you lose your audience when never mind calling rallies volleys. And yeah, right, terminology, right. which yeah. has happened in in movies. But when the strokes don't look like top level tennis strokes you lose the audience pretty fast. How did this one do? Uh, I thought it did pretty well. I really do. I think there's some... I noticed this especially in Battle of the Sexes, the Billie Jean King, Bobby Riggs movie, that the tennis from the 70s was so, in a way, slow compared to the way we think of tennis today that... The fact that these actors were were doing the strokes or some some of the strokes, they had doubles playing tennis too. But... If you had someone on screen today playing in Nadal or Federer, I mean, you couldn't do it. No one, no one could possibly do that. But it is possible to have uh, an actor look plausibly like, uh, you know, Bobby Riggs hitting a forehand. That's a good point. Because I, I think, I mean, because what I was building up to is it strikes me people have tried. I mean, it has not been for lack of effort. Tennis has not really broken through in terms of a mainstream Movie. We'll talk about your book. We'll talk yeah, about yeah. Caddyshack in a moment. I think that did a lot for golf. Um, tennis certainly. There's no shortage of scripts. It doesn't seem as though the sport's quite been done right cinematically. No, in fact, it's been criminally underserved. All right, so I you're mean, with me on that. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. I mean, I can't think of a movie where tennis has been. You know, well, first of all, the, the list is very short, but but. There's no real great tennis movie. I would argue that Borg McEnroe comes the closest, um, and maybe certain scenes in the Royal Tenenbaums with Richie Tenenbaum. No, that's where it gets you know yeah. trading places yeah. and the Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah. Exactly. There, there are occasional uh, snippets. Right. But any movie that Andy really Hall focuses on tennis as hasn't whiffed. hit the mark. Yeah, no. And you uh, battle the sexes didn't didn't do it for you. I liked it. I didn't love it. I th- I think most critics liked it more than I did. I thought it was very TV movie of the week uh, feeling to me. Yeah, there were there were no. I actually had the writer and director with Jonathan Dayton, Valerie Ferris mm. on uh, the podcast several months ago, and and they, you know, this this I thought they did a nice job with the material. There's some nice touches, not a lot of surprises. I mean, I likened it to the po- you see the post. Yes, it, it's a good In, impeccable good movie, but yeah. it didn't exactly. Yeah. I didn't learn anything right. necessarily. Yeah, it was um, a radical retelling of something that you thought you knew. Exactly. Yeah. What. Um, what is it about tennis? I mean, it's, to me, it strikes me as, as exceedingly cinematic and the contrast and it's one-on-one and the whole crazy subculture of the sport. I mean, it seems like a lot of the elements for a good movie are there. Why do you think it hasn't really broken through? I think it's such an interior game. I mean, it's it's really, I mean, the actor, the sorry, the, the athletes are so much in their own heads. Um, you know, I, I think that um, 
also there's a there's a I think there's still a sort of country club blue blood sort of elitism about the sport that a lot of people that it doesn't feel like it's a commercial subject you know what i mean or it appeals to a, right. a small a fairly small audience um and i don't you know beyond that again you have the problem of actors making the strokes look convincing um the, i'm grasping at straws here because to me it seems like Tennis is perfectly teed up to that's, be that's to I be feel. a great to have the great defining I feel, tennis uh, movie. Yeah, we, we will transition uh, to to your Caddyshack book, which yeah. takes an elitist blue blood sport yeah. and uh, gives it a new twist. But I, I always feel like, first of all, you can you can attack that, right? You can have at it. You, I always say, go down the list, and from the Williams sisters, Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, these are not products of the country club. This is not right. Spalding learning right. to uh, to hit <laughs> forehands with the, with the country club right. pro. Um, I just think, I mean, what, what do studios want now? They want global, right? Mm-hmm. I heard, I heard uh, a studio head speak about how the, the baseball movie is dying because we need an international audience and ghosts in the Iowa cornfields and right. minor league teams in North Carolina. That's not selling, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's not moving product beyond the U.S. Yeah. Tennis is a global sport. It yeah. seems to check that box as well. Well, you'd also think that in that case, then every other movie that's coming out of Hollywood should be a soccer movie. You know, yeah, that's exactly. what you would think. Right, but right. I mean, I just think it's it's sort of Monday morning quarterbacking. I think that, you know, there hasn't been they're not making tennis movies because there hasn't been a great one. And they're not going to there's not going to be a great one because no one's green lighting. It's sort of a, you know, right, chicken and the egg thing. Yeah. I, I also but I apparently there are still a number of Alice Marble, who is a, a player from you know more than 100 years ago, was, yeah. was a, a spy at one point. I mean, there are. Projects that have been optioned. There are some scripts. I mean, uh, who would, in I, the pipeline? I, you know, I would love to see a Renee Richards movie. That would be so amazing. Um, I, w- I would say Renee. I mean, God bless Caitlyn Jenner. Yeah, Renee Richards was thirty years ahead of the, and actually competing. I mean, this this was an issue that tennis dealt with, and I would argue overall dealt with fairly gracefully. Yeah, decades before. Caitlin Jenner. I mean, that to me is a very dramatic movie. And there was a court case before the U.S. Open in 77, I think right. it was, about whether or not she should be allowed to play as a woman. It's It was really, I mean, I, there's I drama say, there. Exactly. And we hear the, I mean, every now and then on your feeds, you, you hear about uh, these issues that come up with, with high school wrestling teams. And Renee Richards was, we're, we're talking about Wimbledon here. Yeah, I know. We're talking about playing the U.S. Open. I know. Um, but let, let's talk about uh, what, what tennis does not have, golf does. Which yes. is a movie that demystified the sport. I, I don't know if we can say that Caddyshack triggered some sort of boom. I don't want to go that far, but yeah. I do think this was for for me anyway. In the mid, this, this was my exposure to golf. Yeah, it's it's you know I don't I don't really think of it as a golf movie. I think of it as, uh, I mean I guess I do, but it's it's I think there if you're focusing on golf, the better movie to watch is maybe Tin Cup or something like that. I mean everyone's swing in right. Caddyshack apart from you know. Arguably, Bill Murray's or or, or uh, Michael O'Keefe says Danny Noon is is pretty terrible. Right. Uh, you know, this is not a movie that one watches to learn anything about the game of golf. Um, however, uh, it's a perfect setting for the kind of snobs versus slobs comedies that were coming out at this point. Um, fueled by the National Lampoon. I mean, they had started off with Animal House in 1978. That was the first National Lampoon movie. And Harold Ramis, who directed Caddyshack, say, wrote is, Animal House. This yeah. is Ramis and, uh, and, yes, and Doug Ramis Kenny. Yes, Ramis and Doug Kenny. And that movie became, I mean, it was made for like $2.5 million, and it became the highest-grossing comedy of all time. 
So they thought that these guys really must be onto something. So they decided to sort of take the Animal House formula of snobs versus slobs and set it at a country club, which makes perfect sense. And um, their co-writer on the project was Brian Doyle Murray, Bill Murray's older brother. And the Murray boys had grown up in Illinois, just north of Chicago, caddying as kids. And it was really his idea, the Murray brothers' sort of experiences that, that gave the germ to the movie. I hadn't ever thought that's uh, that's very good. The, yeah. the, the the caddies are uh, what's the I'm blanking on the name. What's the fraternity in Animal House? Oh, the the uh, well, the Deltas and the uh, the, Del- oh, the, the Delta Belushi, House. Yeah, the Delta House was basically. I right. never even. Um, what what would have made the better movie, Caddyshack itself or the making of Caddyshack? I would argue that the making of Caddyshack is a million times more interesting than the movie itself. I mean, I love the movie. I grew up on the movie. Uh, it was sort of. You know, when you're a movie critic like I am, people always expect you to like movies like, you know, um, by Fellini and Kurosawa and Orson Welles and blah, 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 and Hitchcock. And I do. Those are great. But the movies that I really sort of this is not the love the most, yes, right, the movies that I love the most are the movies I grew up with, and that's Caddyshack and Stripes and Ghostbusters and all these movies. Um, Bill, so, Murray, Bill Murray is uh, figures prominently in your... Yes, he, do, he absolutely does. And uh, writing the book, I mean, was... Uh, Interviewing Bill Murray is something I can now sort of scratch off my bucket list. How how was he? Even among Hollywood types and even among sort of erratic geniuses, there still seems to be a special place reserved for Bill Murray. I mean, there are Hollywood actors. I mean, Alec Baldwin talks about him in yeah. sort of these mystical terms. How how is he to deal with? And what what is it about this guy? Forty years in, that he still has this mystique. Well, I don't. He's so enigmatic. I mean, he's just he just refuses to play by the rules, and he, you know, he shows up to movies that he's. You don't really know if you have him in your movie until he shows up, and he usually shows up late. <laughs> right, and right, it's like right. you know, he he sort of works on his own Bill Murray time, and um, you know, he also doesn't have an agent or a publicist. You know, to reach him, you have to get this one eight hundred number and leave a message, and he may or may not call you back, and it may or may not be within the year. And I mean, it's really. He's just sort of this dude who drifts off the grid and plays by his own rules and listens to his own drum. And it's I think people find that refreshing. He's just not programmed and and, uh, you know, on point all the time. You, one thing I heard is if you get him, you get him. So if he if he returns your call, you're good for 90 minutes. It's just that was that was the, the most unexpected thing about it is that and how introspective he was. I got a call. You know, this 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 book sort of originated as an oral history and a where are they now issue of Sports Illustrated several years ago. And um, I had left several messages for Bill Murray. I mean, like for a month, pretty much every day for a month, taking a variety of different tacks about like, you know, it's sort of, I was shameless about sort of praising him and blah, blah, blah. And, and finally one night at nine 30, it was two days before the story was due. Um, and I was really freaking out because I don't have the biggest star for the story. Uh, the phone in my office lit up and it had a South Carolina prefix on it. And I picked it up and it was, you know, hey, it's yeah, Bill. Never been so happy. To I'd hear never been three. so happy to hear the guy. And I thought, geez, I'm going to get him for like, if I'm lucky, five minutes. You know what I mean? And it's he stayed on, answered every question. He was really thoughtful and funny and but not like trying too hard to be funny and. Um, introspective and and just like a good dude and um, I you know it was just a great great moment. Does he recognize uh, 
sort of the, the, the quirks of this movie? Yeah, I think he's in a way very grateful to the movie. It was really, you know, he had he had made one movie before this, Meatballs, Meatballs which yeah. was a big, a big hit. Right. Um, but this movie um, reunited him with a lot of people that he really looked up to. And it sort of made him a star. He was on Saturday Night Live at the time, and the three writers on the film, Harold Ramis, Brian Doyle Murray, and Doug Kenny, were all idols of his. Um, and he sort of, the fact that he was performing for them and making them laugh by doing his sort of improv shtick in these scenes, um, I think really meant a lot to him. How, how much of, because Rodney Dangerfield obviously came from a comedy background too well how much of this was improv and how much of this was scripted yeah i mean a lot of it a lot certainly much much more than was customary at the time now it's become a little bit of a thing you know you watch like curb your enthusiasm or veep and a lot of it's sort of just We're on eating the chicken fly. go yeah exactly um but back then uh you know improv happened on movie sets but it wasn't a way really a way of working but the guys who who made this movie all came out of the tradition of second city or saturday night live so they had this background in in improv and they trusted themselves to be funnier than whatever appeared on the page and uh yeah, I would say a good 45% of the movie is completely improv. There isn't a single written line that Bill Murray delivers in the film that's in the script. It just says Bill riffs here. And that he would just give be given the, the, the premise, and cameras would roll, and Bill would just go to really? town. Really? Yeah. This is uh, Every single, the, the ball washer scene. I mean, the just, whole yeah. thing. The whole thing. What is it? It's a funny movie. We, we, we all... You know, we can who, agree who on that. Like, we agree on that. Who doesn't like Caddyshack? I, I work for Tennis Channel at the Majors. Yeah. And in the control room, and the guys are in your ear, and it's still, you know, it's just whatever. Pick your line. You do drugs, Danny? Right. Every day. Every day. I mean, these lines 40 years later are still being uh, quoted. This movie still seems to have currency. Obviously, Bill Murray goes on to big things, but... It does mystify me a little. What what is it about this movie? Well, I think there's. I, I think it's a couple things. I think first of all, uh, that the subject is something that people always sort of embrace. You know, it's 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 a movie that, you know, takes the air out of people who deserve to have the air taken out of them. I think that um, it's a movie that uh, is when you really look at the movie, it's it's not well made. It's a collection exactly. of it's a collection of gags. It's like a, a Saturday Night Live yeah. sketches stitched together. Yeah, and it's it has really no story. I mean, it does, but it's, but I think its imperfections in a way sort of make it perfect. And I think also, you know, the final thing about it is that, um, you know, look, I think it's a, I think it's a, a mainstream movie that feels like a cult movie. In other words, the audience who really reacts to this film feels in some way that it's theirs. When you're at a party or at a barbecue or something, and someone says, you know, and I've got that going for me, which is nice, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. You, you know that that person automatically is a kindred spirit. You know what I mean? Like, I could hang with this person. Right. Um, and there aren't a lot of movies that have that, that sort of, you know, currency. And, um, yeah, so I think it's, it ties people together. Why, why is that? I think you're right. I mean, I've, you know, I've Why don't more movies do that? I have two te- So my son, so what would I have been? I don't know, it's probably... You know, 13, 14, when yeah. I saw this, I didn't see it in the theaters, but exactly. And you pick up on, there's a pool, but there's a pond for you. Right. X decades later, we still can go back and forth with lines. That doesn't seem to, I don't see my son watching movies and walking out of there with 30 quotes that he's going to retain in his 40s. I don't, I think there's, I think there's 
pop culture has become so fragmented in a way. Uh, there's there's so many TV channels. There's so much music you can listen to. It's almost like we don't have things in common anymore. Um, everything's so balkanized. Yeah, and, and everything's so balkanized. And, you know, there aren't three networks to watch on TV like when you and I were growing up. Uh, so the chances are good that, you know, 40 percent of the people that you went to school with watched Dallas last night. You know what I mean? So you can talk about that. But now it's like, you know, everyone's watching their own little things and their own little silos on Netflix or whatever. So I think so I think that this was a common movie that people could talk about. I also think it's just because the lines are that good. The performances are that funny that people remember them. Um, you know, Ted Knight. uh to me, is really the the other guys get a lot of the credit. To me, he steals the movie. I'll, He's t- just I'll tell the you one of the dude. one of the ironies I heard too, and you feel free to refute this. Yeah, was that uh, in real life, as we call it? Yeah, IRL, as the kids say. Right. Ted Knight, good dude. Rodney Dangerfield, complete asshole. That the you know, roles were completely reversed. It. Uh, we all love Rodney Dangerfield, who's, who's taking it to the. Yeah, the, I mean, I heard Rodney could be tough. Yeah. Um, it, there, there's a funny, a funny anecdote in the in the book about Ronnie Dangerfield because he liked to smoke. The, the, by the way, the book is is pretty full of drug anecdotes, and there's there's so one, like there's cocaine yeah, thing, yeah, cocaine. I mean, it's 1979 in Florida when they were shooting it. I mean, it's pretty much the gateway to cocaine in America, and um, so Ronnie Dangerfield liked liked his drugs, and um, there was a there was a uh, moment that one of the guys who played one of the caddies, um, Rodney would see him. And uh, have the kid come back to his room to like play him his his comedy set on his tape recorder, and to get the kid's reaction. And they'd smoke weed together. And like every day, this would happen. Rodney would just walk around the hotel with like in a bathrobe and just like, you know, collar people mm-hmm. and bring him to his room to play him his set and smoke weed. And after a while, like everyone was like, if you saw Rodney out of the corner of your eye, you ran in the other direction because you just didn't want to didn't want to didn't want to deal. You know? Yeah, I think I think he he was very insecure on the movie because he was so used as a stand up to hearing immediate feedback of laughter. And you can't do that in the movie set or you ruin the take that he thought he was bombing, that he was really um, screwing, oh, you, you wrote up. that he's waiting yeah. for the response and all yeah. the. Uh... Yeah. yeah. No, no one's no one's, no one's laughing. laughing at you're, it. I was getting, you're a stand-up yeah. comedian. You think yeah. you're bombing. Yeah, yeah. And he was just really insecure throughout the whole thing. I remember you you uh, you wrote this in the in the SI piece. How, how much was Rodney Dangerfield paid for this? Oh, it wasn't a lot. It was like it's like thirty five grand. Yeah, like thirty five grand. And he uh, complained for years afterwards that he lost money on the movie because he could have made you know five times that doing you know three months in Vegas uh, while, while the movie was shooting. What was the total budget on the movie? Six million dollars. How yeah. much did it make? Uh, just shy of forty. So yeah, everybody went home happy. Well, more or less. I mean, I think they expected it to be another Animal House, and it was not. The reviews on this movie were pretty terrible, um, mixed to, to, to terrible. And uh, it's only over time that it's become sort of this this considered a comedy classic. Uh, you know, it was like the 19th or 17th highest grossing film of the year. Uh, it wasn't what you think of as, as necessarily like an immediate box office hit. Uh, sequels? Well, there is one, Bob, you know, right? Caddy, Caddyshack too. It's right? terrible. It's like maybe the worst sequel of right. all time. Um, you just can't R- return to to Bushwood, I guess. Doug Kenny is the hero of this book. He is. He's he's the hero and sort of the flawed flawed hero. Um, Doug Kenny 
was a guy who uh, sort of edited the Harvard Lampoon when he was an undergrad at Harvard. And he and uh, his co-editor, Henry Beard, they went to New York and they started the National Lampoon, which was an immediate public publishing sensation um uh it was you know the hottest magazine of the early 70s and um you know really sharp satiric magazine uh and and then he went off and wrote animal house and uh and then he wrote and produced caddyshack and shortly after the movie came out i don't know if you is this a spoiler to tell people that his fate what happened to doug no. in hawaii yeah yeah go ahead all right so shortly after the movie came out he was pretty strung out on on cocaine by the time this you know the movie came out and he sort of regarded it as a failure because it just wasn't the movie that he wanted it to be he thought it could have been a lot better um so he goes to hawaii with chevy chase and um after chase returns he uh disappears and uh, eventually they found him at the bottom of a ravine in Hawaii, and uh, he died, you know, before ever seeing that Caddyshack. People really liked Caddyshack and that it was, that it was a hit. Um, he's a fascinating guy, and uh, the people I spoke to for the book, um, you know, all, reference for this all of them I mean, are just like smartest guy I've ever met, funniest guy I've ever met, most charismatic guy I've ever met, uh, just a fascinating guy. So we, we, uh, we did this... The sixty minutes piece on the Harvard Lampoon, yeah, and it's Updike and Plimpton, Plimpton yeah, and Jim Downey, yeah. and you. Just, I mean, you just go with Conan O'Brien and Colin. I mean, just name, t- take off the names, and to a person, everyone says Doug Kenny. Doug Kenny, yeah, next level, yeah. Um, could you make Caddyshack today? <sighs> if this, if this, first of all, if the script floats around, is anyone biting? I don't know. I I suspect not. Um, I don't think that's a really good question. And I've never really thought about it. I I think you might be able to, but I don't think a studio would make it sort of the combination of lowbrow humor and, and sort of nudity and drugs. And it's, do we still have the appetite for that? I don't know. I feel like we do. There's a movie that's coming out this week called Blockers, which is about these three uh, high school teenage girls who all have this pact to lose their virginity on prom night. And it's got it's a big studio movie. And it's and it's it's it feels um, raunchy in a way that uh, that this movie feels raunchy. But I don't I think there's something embracing the dumbness of, of of Caddyshack is something that they don't really do anymore. Inter- yeah, that's a, that's a you good know point. what I mean. Yeah, it's just exactly. just right. unapologetically silly. Right. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I I'd like to think that they'd still make it, but I don't know. What do we do about this tennis movie? What do we do about it? Do we do we go do off you, and write one? Well, I don't. I mean, do you, do you, well, that's actually an interesting question. I mean, you've God knows how many movies. How many movies do you see a week? Uh, probably six. So you're seeing a movie a day. You'll basically. see three hundred movies a year. Yes. How do you resist the temptation to just say, you know what, I'm locking myself in the, yeah, well, I'm going to the Starbucks, I'm putting on my noise-canceling headphones, I can write one of these screenplays? Um, I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's probably a lot harder than it, than it, than it seems. Um, you know, it's the same way with, like, fiction. I don't, like, you know, I'm a journalist, and I don't, I read a book of fiction, um, and I just sort yeah, of, I mean, it's, it's like we, a different, it's a different muscle altogether. I don't think I could do that. You don't, you don't have, uh, 
the, the Elvis Mitchell dream to uh, start writing your own screenplays? Well, you know, I'd, I would. I'd have to find the right idea. Um, I don't know that it would be a tennis movie, per se, because I would want it to get made if I was going to spend the time on it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I would try it. I, I, I dabbled. I tried one, you know, years ago with a friend um, and, you know, didn't get very far with We finished it, but I don't think... You know, there wasn't like this great hunger for it in Hollywood. I think that would be a real temptation. To yeah. Being a, uh, but but I uh, the reason I early on I first started covering tennis, I, yeah, I saw Kingpin. My God, I I thought Kingpin was great. I don't yeah. know if it, I don't know if it holds up. I haven't seen it in years. But yeah. um, so why isn't tennis getting in this game? I said, well, if I'm the USTA for all the initiatives for all the discretionary spends they have. Take fifty thousand dollars. Take a hundred thousand dollars and go commission a script. If yeah. it hits, if you could have a Caddyshack for tennis, this could really have a demonstrable manifest change on on tennis. I think um, I think it's a great idea because you know what Caddyshack did, and and to some degree later, um, what some of the more colorful players on the tour did is that they sort of changed the image. I was gonna say it, it demystified golf, golf, but it also yeah. kind of made it made it cool of, in a little way. Yeah. Go play golf. Yeah, 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 totally. You know, it's you want to get out there and you want to be Chevy Chase. You know, uh, I, I, I think tennis could use that. I think it, it could really use um, sort of a populist approach to the sport um, through a, a movie or TV show or something. Yeah. Um, all right, this was great. Everyone should see Borg McEnroe, but everyone should also buy Caddyshack: The Making of a Hollywood. Cinderella story, Chris Nashawati, the author, and also the uh, the great advocate for Board McEnroe. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming by. My pleasure, anytime. All right, that does it for this week. Thanks to our guest and in person guest. We should do more of those. That was Chris Nashawati, uh, big tennis guy, big advocate of the Borg McEnroe movie, and author of the new Caddyshack book. Thanks as always to our extraordinary producer Jamie Lasanti. Jamie, I ask you, do you have a favorite tennis movie? I can give you a name of one, but it's going to be really corny and really... Uh, Spring Fever? The same as probably everyone else's. What do you got? Wimbledon. Oh. I Kirsten mean, like, Dunst? It's just Paul like Bettany? the first one. You know, so it's like... Oh, the first you. one for me. Child of the 90s. <laughs> Um, they did make tennis movies before Wimbledon, but yeah, that's... that's. I mean, what what it got a lot of people, I me. think. Um, no, I, I think... Uh, I think what hung up a lot of people with Wimbledon was just the tennis scenes looked pretty weak. Right. Um, but, I mean, it's a movie that has a tennis storyline. It's not a tennis movie. That's a good way to look at it. So, um, Did you uh, – uh, you've seen others? I will bring up one other it's – it's not a film, but it's a yeah. book. It is also not the greatest book, but it is sort of based on – or the author says it's based on, and a, a, a player did help her sort of create it. But what do you got? I read it in like three days commuting on the subway. Um, the Singles Game, which is literally this like drama book about, you know, the WTA tour and the, the things that go on behind the that? scenes. Uh, the person who also wrote uh, The Devil Wears Prada. Oh, um, Lauren, Lauren, Weisberger. Uh, Lauren Weisberger. Yes. You'd recommend? Uh, if, if you want, like, a trashy book to read on the beach this summer, sure. I mean, it's not, like... Did you see the uh, you see the Andy Samberg... It wasn't really a movie, but the... I can't remember what it's called. The, the takeoff on the Isner-Mahout match? Did not. Let's find the name of that. I'm um, bad. I, I, I said this earlier. Chris sees 
300 movies movies, six movies a week i see probably six movies a year so i'm really bad at this i i when i have time to myself i don't normally seven days in hell is what i'm talking about Ah, but uh no i mean that's the problem the you did you see um did you see battle of sexes i did i i like i i was gonna i mean i was going reaching back a little bit i mean that's obviously you guys talked about that um I, I don't, I don't think. I mean, that was yeah, it was good. B B plus, pleasant. Um, right. But this was not a transformative movie that's either going to win Oscars or is going to suddenly completely transform tennis's image. Um, let me ask you one more question before we uh, before we call it a podcast. It's been an interesting year in tennis so far. Roger Federer wins still another major. Rafa Nadal is uh, currently ranked number one, though he hasn't done a lot of actual tennis playing, unfortunately. Um, Novak Djokovic is a mystery. Sloane Stevens uh, was very concerning after the U.S. Open and now looks like a, uh, a world beater again back in the top 10. Um, Serena Williams has come back, but is not quite yet the Serena Williams we've, we've grown to know and love. What struck you so far about this strange first trimester of uh, tennis in 2018? I think the silence about of the top players that we normally hear about by this time of the year. So Djokovic, obviously you mentioned, but even Vavrinka, I mean, Nadal hasn't played. There really hasn't been a tournament where they've all been at, where they everyone's been really competing head to head. And by this time of the year, we usually have that already. Um, and it's kind of, it's a little sad. It makes me feel like we haven't really gone into the meat of of the tennis season yet where really those those guys are battling it out no you're and uh sadly who knows if you know roger federer will not be playing the french open right who knows i mean we we assume nadal will and will be going for his 11th roland garros title we don't know what state novak djokovic is going to be in andy murray hasn't right played a match this year stan Wawrinka hasn't played a match this year um well he has but um it is not i mean been. they've essentially been absent yeah, from the tour exactly. and it's uh and in their absence we haven't really had i mean del potra obviously one we've had isner when we've had some great storylines of people who have kind of come up in their position but right. i mean we haven't had any you know anyone really come up in their place maybe those up-and-comers that are supposed to fill that vacancy you know fill that yeah, space t- that's a good point you raise because really... to me that's so this happens in all sports right it happens in every field for that matter right the the old law partner uh, is winding it down and it's going to retire and there's a new hotshot is going to be a managing partner michael jordan's not in the nba and who's going to fill the void um we have not seen some of the the obvious young candidates step up maybe that will happen in uh in paris so i suspect uh if nadal is anything close to healthy he's going to be the the overwhelming favorite i think as of now especially tailoring his schedule roger Federer is probably going to be the favorite at wimbledon who knows but suddenly that's three quarters of the majors this year already it's been a strange year um and we'll see how serena's doing we'll see if sloan stevens can keep this up there have been some sort of mini surprises we were going to have danielle collins Right. On today, we'll try to get to her in, in the future. She had a match when she was supposed to be talking to a us. Match. I know. Nice priorities, Danielle Collins. Gosh. Um, there have been some, you know, Naomi Osaka has been a nice story, but we haven't. Uh, it's been a weird year. We'll, uh, we'll leave I, it at that. I feel like it, in, on the positive side, it seems like it's all bubbling up to have a big finish, right? There but you go. I feel like that's what's That's a good happen. way to look at it. No, I mean, people are going to come to the U.S. Open, as they always do, but I suspect this year more than any. Either we're going we're gonna to salvage the year. 
People and are going to peak this is at our that last, time, uh, sort of in the exactly. summer, at the end of the summer. Exactly. Um, all right. That, uh, that does it for this week. We will have a, I believe we're going to have a player guest next week. But thanks to Chris Nashawati. Thanks to Jamie. As always, you can get this podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever fine podcasts are sold. Jamie always reminds me to say, leave a rating, right? Leave a review. Leave a review. Uh, subscribe. Subscribe. Leave a review. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll do it again in a week. All right. Thanks, everyone. Mm-hmm.